If I haven't met you yet, my name is Ray, and I'm a member here at the church. And uh, this evening we're going to be looking at God's Word to us here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, so if you haven't already turned there in your Bible or your Bible app on your phone, I invite you to do that now and follow along with me. You know, one question that most of us have probably asked ourselves at some point in our life is, what is God's will for my life? Have you ever asked that before? I mean, I know I have. And usually when we ask that, we're, we're usually thinking about our circumstances, aren't we? You know, what, what job should I choose? Where should I live? Or, you know, what, which Hoover should I buy, Lord? Uh, you, know, you know, these kinds of things, we're, we tend to think about our circumstances. And it's good to, to pray through decisions like this in our circumstances. But what we see in the scriptures is that the Bible shows us that God's will for us is less about our circumstances and more about how we live in our circumstances. You know, this has been a tough year, uh, year and a half really, for many people around the world. And maybe that includes you as well. Maybe you've lost a loved one from COVID-19. Or maybe, maybe it's impacted your work or your study plans. Or maybe you're just going through some other uh, challenging circumstance right now. And you may be wondering, what is God's will for my life in these days? Well, our text this evening, we're going to see one instance where God states explicitly what his will is. And in short, God's will is our holiness, our sanctification, that we would grow progressively more and more like Christ and less and less like the sinful nature that still rages inside of us. I've titled this message uh, this evening, Living to Please God, because that's how the Apostle Paul here actually describes holiness, living a life that pleases God, doing this more and more. So what we're going to see here is Paul uh, exhorting us to live a life that pleases God. And he actually applies it for the, the Thessalonian Christians here in two specific areas. That we would live to please God in our sexual conduct and in our love for one another. So what I want us to do is notice there are three exhortations. Three exhortations to holy living that we can apply as Christians in our lives. The first exhortation that we see is live to please God. Simply live to please God. This is the sort of the overarching exhortation here uh, that leads to the rest that will follow. Look at verse 1. Paul writes, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Chapter 4 here in 1 Thessalonians is actually where Paul begins to shift his focus in the letter. In the first half, the chapters 1 through 3, we see where Paul is writing to these Thessalonian Christians that had become believers through Paul's missionary ministry. You can read about in Acts 17. And he's writing to them, encouraging them, complimenting their faith, complimenting their love. And even talking about how 
Paul's assistant, Timothy, went to the Thessalonians to check on them to see how they were doing. And he had brought back a report to Paul um, to, to talk about really the encouraging news mainly about the Thessalonians, that they were standing firm in their faith. But now we see in chapter 4, Paul begins to um, focus more on exhorting the Thessalonians towards obedience to Christ. And in certain areas that they were either struggling in or that they had questions about. And so he exhorts them now, live to please God. Here's the, you know, this is the main thing that I want to say to you, Thessalonian brothers and sisters. But what does that mean, to live to please God? Well, let me share with you some observations that we could make here from just from verses one and two. First off, living to please God is practical. It's a a practical matter. Notice he says, live to please God as in fact you are doing. Do this more and more. It is a practical thing that we actually have a responsibility for doing for taking action in you know it can be tempting when we consider the gospel this glorious good news that we are saved by God's grace and not by our works and that's that's absolutely true and that even in our Christian living it is God that works in us by his spirit to be able to obey his word we're actually going to look at that here in this passage itself But that can come at a risk of losing the fact that God does call us to active obedience. We really do have a practical role to play in obeying God's word and growing in Christ's likeness. So it is practical. This is perceivable by other people living to please God. So it's practical. It is secondly progressive. Living to please God is a progressive thing. Notice he says... Uh, how to live and to please God. Or you you might have heard in uh, uh, Ashley's message this morning, that verb in the Greek that he's talking about there gives the idea of walking. Some translations say to walk and to please God. And he says more and more or abounding. See, living to please God is something that we progress in over our lifetime, that we will want to see... uh, being able to grow progressively in it, that we will never ultimately arrive. None of us can stand here, certainly not I, and say that I have arrived at holiness. We will not until we go to be with the Lord. It is a progressive thing that we would desire that. So it's practical, it's progressive. The third is that living to please God is a personal thing. It's personal. We live to please who? God. We don't live to please ourselves. I'm not trying to do the right thing to make myself feel better about myself. You're not living to please your parents, ultimately, or your spouse. You're certainly not living to please other people as the primary goal. I mean, you would be living no differently than a Pharisee if that were the case. No, we live to please God, living before the face of God. It is a personal thing. And then fourthly, yes, it's another P word. uh, Living to please God is prescriptive. It's prescriptive. Look at verse 2. Paul says, you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So you see, we don't get to make it up what it means to please God. 
It's according to God's will as revealed to us in his word, under his authority. Our society doesn't dictate it to us. Our tradition doesn't dictate it to us even. Even Christian culture doesn't dictate what it means to live a life pleasing to God. We see it here in God's word according to his will. So then what, do we, what should we do, Charlotte Chapel? What, I mean, this is still kind of abstract, right? How do we live to please God practically? Well, that's actually what Paul does for us here in the rest of the passage. Starting from verse 3 to 12, we're going to see where Paul now takes this exhortation of live to please God and to the Thessalonians, and for us as well, he's going to show us in two areas. And the second, and it leads to our next exhortation. That the first one is live to please God. The second is from that, and it is live to please God in your sexual conduct. That's the second exhortation. Live to please God in your sexual conduct. Look with me at verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That's a big term, right? Sanctified. Well, the term here, sanctified, or you could call it uh, sanctification or holiness, your holiness. Uh, it's not talking about the state of you know, being a holy person in the sense of you know, positionally before God. That is something that's true of those who've put their trust in Christ. That if you've placed faith in Christ, that God now looks at you as holy in his sight. Not because of anything that you or I have done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And so, yes, positionally we are blameless in his sight. We are made right in his sight. But what this is talking about here is the the process of growing in the likeness to Christ that God desires for us in our life. And so he says, God's will is your sanctification, your growth in Christ's likeness. And he points now specifically to sexual sin. He says that you should avoid sexual immorality. I prefer to say sexual sin. I think that gets really at the point a little bit better. Sexual sin. Why is he bringing that up here? Because we know that if God's will for us is our sanctification, our growth in Christ's likeness, well, that does apply to more areas of life than just our sexuality. But he's applying it here specifically because the Thessalonian Christians he's writing to they were, there were some who were either openly rejecting God's standard uh, of sexuality or many who were, who were just struggling in this area because of their background in the city of Thessalonica, the sex culture of Thessalonica. Um, many of the believers in this church were, were Gentiles by birth and that meant that they grew up in a, in a household where there was not any teaching on a, a biblical type standard of, of sexuality. And so they grew up in a culture where adultery, um, sex outside of marriage, all these kinds of things were very common, even encouraged. And so Paul is trying to tell them to, to turn away from the sexual standards of their society and instead embrace God's uh, holy design for sex. Well, what about you, brothers and sisters? How, how do you view sex? You know, it could be easy to look at this text and, and, and come away with the idea that, wow, well, maybe the Bible teaches that sex is a, 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 in itself is, is a bad thing or something to avoid. But that's not the teaching of Scripture. You see, sex is part of God's good creation. 
And God intended it for our good when it is carried out according to his design. That is, in the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. You see, the opposite of God's good design for sex is sexual sin. That is the corruption of sex into something that God did not intend for us. Sex outside of marriage, adultery, pornography, homosexuality. These take God's design for sex between a man and a woman within marriage and turns it into something that's ultimately selfish and rebellious against the very one who gave us this gift of sex. You see, the Bible is very clear that those who are in Christ, that we must put off these practices. We also see secondly here in verse 4, he talks about self-control. So first he says, avoid sexual sin. And now he's saying, verse 4, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. See, the body is not meant for sexual sin, brothers and sisters, but for the Lord. And for those who've been united to Christ by faith, our bodies are, get this, members of Christ. Wow. So, friends, that means for those of you who are in Christ, your body matters. Your body matters. So we should treat it with uh, a a sense of holiness and and honor and self-control. Verse 5, he says, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. You see, self-control is directly tied to a personal relationship with God, knowing God. And finally, he says in verse 6, to not sexually abuse another. Look with me at verse 6. He says, and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. See, Paul is warning them, not to let sexual sin gain a foothold in the church. Sexual abuse. I think there are too many examples of this today for me to to have to tell you that this is a real danger that we face. We need to be uh, vigilant about protecting those in our church who are vulnerable. And that we shouldn't try to cover it up if it does happen, certainly not try to act like it will never happen. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, he says. The Lord is an avenger against sin and is an avenger for those who are sinned against. Do not think that we will get away with sexual, living in sexual sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. Because look at verse 7, he says, God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. So whoever rejects God's call to holiness, he says here in verse 8, You're not rejecting a human authority. You're not rejecting the Apostle Paul. You're not rejecting me. You're rejecting God. God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. 
Did you see that right there in verse 8? Look at that. Don't miss this. Friends, don't miss this. This is important. For those whom God has saved, whom God has called into salvation, into a holy life, he has given them his Holy Spirit. We are called to be holy, but not on our own. This is great news, Charlotte Chapel. For those who are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God who makes you holy. Because you remember in that, that verse I just read to you from 1 Corinthians 6, after we learn about those who are living in sexual sin will not inherit the kingdom of God, what does he say next? He says, that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, I know that there are those here that you are believers in Christ. You, you want to, to seek the will of God. You want to pursue obedience to Christ, but you're struggling. You're struggling with pornography. You're struggling with lustful thoughts. You're, maybe maybe you've, you've, you've messed up in your, your dating relationships. Well, I hope that you hear this, this loving warning from God's word, but also the hope that it gives that God has given you, given you everything you need to put sin to death and to grow in holiness, a life that pleases him. Turn away from sexual sin, brothers and sisters, because you know what? God has something better for you. You know, as we might remember from our sermon series in Song of Solomon, in the Song of Songs, you know, God's design for sex within marriage is far better than anything we could contrive out of our own selfish desires. And God has something to offer that's even better than marital sex. Because marital sex points to a spiritual and eternal reality. The love of Jesus Christ available to everyone who would believe. We can know in part in this life and in full in the life to come. And growing in holiness is what brings us into a deeper intimacy with Christ and a greater satisfaction in him. You see, I know that for many of us, when we think of the word holiness, we think of you know, some preacher in a black robe and a white collar and a big wig on talking about holiness, you know, as if it's this dry, rigid, you know, restrictive thing that, you know, uh, nobody knows how to have fun anymore when you talk about holiness. But friends, holiness is not about God holding out on you. It is God pouring out to you what is far more satisfying. In seeking holiness, you don't have to fear, to have fear of missing out. You might have seen this on social media, FOMO, fear of missing out. In seeking holiness, you don't have to have fear of missing out. Actually, it's the reverse. If you don't seek holiness, you should have fear of missing out. Missing out on what God has in store for you. In marital sex, but even more 
in the love of Jesus Christ. It's available to you. So friends, do not seek after a misconstrued and corrupted form of sexual desire. Avoid sexual sin and seek God's will for your holiness as far more desirous and satisfying. And, you know, if you're here this evening and you're, and you're not a Christian, I'd love to speak to you as well because we're so glad that you're here. And I know I've probably offended you in a few ways uh, already, but I hope that you see that, you know, we Christians, we don't seek a biblical standard of sexuality because we're bigots or holier than thou or because we think it's going to earn us a ticket to heaven. No, we seek God's will in sex because we've come into a relationship with God through trusting in Jesus Christ. We seek to please God out of love for him because he first loved us. You see, the bigger message that you need to hear this evening is not that you merely need a morally right sexuality. What you need most is to acknowledge that you know better than the rest of us. That your rebellion against God really is your greatest problem. Look to Jesus Christ. Look to him and entrust your life to him. And God will forgive you. God will forgive you. He'll put his spirit in you. And you'll come into a right relationship with God and with other people. So how do we apply this, Charlotte Chapel? How do, how do we live a life that pleases God in our, in our sexual conduct in particular? Well, let me give you a few things. First, what we see here is, number one, avoid. Avoid sexual temptation. Avoid these things. Be, be above reproach. Let's be above reproach. That's kind of an old-fashioned way of saying go the extra mile, going even above what would be the bare minimum of keeping away from those things that would lead us into sin. Learn the places and times when you're most tempted to sin sexually. You know, maybe for some of you, you, you need to set up internet software even that will help you set healthy boundaries for, you to, uh, for your media intake. Secondly, grow in knowing God. Grow in knowing God, knowing the truth. Ephesians 4.22 says that our sinful nature presents us with deceitful desires. They are deceiving. They lie. They don't tell the truth. So you need to know the truth in order to put down the lies that you encounter. So daily, read God's word. Memorize some scripture that is going to be particularly helpful for you in your times of temptation. Third, seek a fullness of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.13 says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So do you pray for a fullness of the Spirit? On a regular basis, ask the Holy Spirit to help you. Also, Seek, a fullness, seek the, the ministry of the Spirit through other believers. You see, the Spirit doesn't occupy just you as an individual. It's part of the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit indwells all believers. And so are you seeking out the support and help from other believers to combat sin in your life? Do you have an accountability partner? 
Maybe, maybe there's someone that you know in the church that is a mature believer that, that you trust and you say, hey, can we get coffee maybe once a month or just have a phone call at some point and let me share how I'm struggling. You can pray for me, ask me some honest questions and help me keep, a, keep me accountable. I think that would be a wonderful thing for us to practice in this church. And lastly, learn to love. Learn to love one another as brothers and sisters, you know, mothers and fathers, as a family. When we can treat each other like family members, it helps us to put away the, the selfish desires that can creep into our hearts. And we can seek each other's good. And really loving one another actually is, is helpful to transition us because we learn the first exhortation, live to please God. Secondly, leading that into live to please God in our sexual conduct. But now Paul is going to start saying from verse 9 to 12, live to please God in your love for one another. Live to please God in your love for one another. Look with me at verse 9. He says, now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. <laughs> wow, we do not need to write to you actually. So why, why is he saying that? Notice two reasons why he says that. First, the Thessalonians already know the imperative to love one another from God himself. Even as new Christians, somehow they knew this need to love one another already. Well, we know they would have seen it in the gospel, which they would have heard, which they would have believed in and been saved in. That God in his love actually brings redemption for his enemies, you and me, who rebel against him. But he demonstrates his love in sending his only son to die on a cross to atone for our sin. So we see that God's love is a central aspect of his own nature. What did Jesus say would be fundamental to being his disciple? Do you remember? He said, this in this way, the whole world will know you are my disciples, that you love one another. That's just the basic part of being a follower of Jesus. We also see it clearly in the Old Testament. Maybe they would have known this in some way. That in the Old Testament, what did Jesus say we learn? If we sum up the Old Testament, the Old Testament law, love God and love your neighbor. See, they, the, the Thessalonians, they, they know that uh, loving each other is fundamental to being a follower of Jesus. He also tells them he doesn't need to write to them about this because they're already obeying it. They're already practicing it. Look at verse 10. It seems that, you know, Timothy reports back to Paul that the Thessalonian believers were showing love to other Christians around Macedonia, even outside of their local church. So, but even though they've been taught by God to love one another, even though they are seeing some progress in this area and growing in it, uh, Paul says to them, do so more and more. And in verse 11, we're going to see where Paul begins to point out actually one area that they need to grow some more in, that they're struggling in to love one another. Look with me at verse 11. Paul begins to urge them to live quietly, minding your own business. And working with your own hands. So these exhortations are related to loving one another. Well, how is that? Well, we learn from 2 Thessalonians, the next uh, page over probably in your Bible, where there's some reports about the Thessalonian church that some were being idle, were just being lazy and not doing their responsibilities at work. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11, Paul writes, We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy 
They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. So these were not people with unavoidable disabilities. These were not people that were struggling to, to find work, to secure a job. No, these were people that were choosing not to work out of laziness. Uh, in this culture at the time in Thessalonica, there was a, what you might call a patronage society where you could have a wealthy patron in the city who would take you on as their dependent, basically, and would support you financially. And so it seems that there were some in the church that were really taking advantage of this. And it was really hurting the church's witness in the community. Rather than being mindful of their daily work, they were being far too mindful of other people's business. So it was hurting their reputation in front of the non-Christian um, city that they were living in. They were seen as being irresponsible and lazy. And more importantly, it was really a failure to love their fellow believers. Paul says that the Thessalonians are doing well in loving one another, but in order to do so more and more, they need to correct this problem of idleness in their congregation. Let me clarify something. Um, what, when he does talk about to mind your own business, to live quietly, not be dependent on anyone, he's not telling them to become an isolated individual in the church and not ever be invested in anybody's life. Just mind your own business and be quiet. No, he's, saying to, he's telling them to renounce laziness to earn their own income so that they can have something to contribute to others, so they can be generous and freely give and love others. We know this because this is the example that Paul himself and his missionary team set before the Thessalonians. You might look back in chapter two, verse nine, he, he says to them, surely you remember brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. See, they were willing to work for a living so that the new fledgling church wouldn't need to support them. And so that they could be an example to those who were being idle in the church. So here's the main point, Charlotte Chapel. Really, even the mundane activities of our daily life affect how we are loving our Christian brothers and sisters. It pleases God when we love one another by being responsible and considerate in our work so that we have something to be generous with towards others. So how should we respond to this then? Well, let me ask you a question. In your relationships with other Christians, are you being a blessing or a burden? Maybe you've taken advantage of a Christian friend's generosity whether financially or hospitably, and you need to ask their forgiveness and find ways where you can be hospitable and generous towards them. Or here's another question. Would others in your community see you as someone who contributes or someone who takes? Perhaps you need to approach one of your coworkers or one of your neighbors and apologize for your behavior around them. You know, if they're not a Christian, they might be surprised. Maybe no one really ever apologizes like that. It could give you an opportunity to really love them, uh, be considerate of them, and even share your reason for seeking reconciliation. Because of Jesus, you're a reconciler. 
So let's do our work in a, in a, our daily work in a way that shows consideration for other fellow believers and, and for those in our community so we can love one another and honor the name of Christ in front of our watching world. So we see in this text, friends, a calling to holiness, a life that pleases God, that we would follow God's will for our sexuality and that we would love one another by leading, by being mindful of our daily responsibilities. You know, this is really going back to the two great commandments, isn't it? That in living to please God, we seek to love God and love our neighbor by following God's good design for sex and by carrying out our daily work as a blessing to others. So what is God's will for your life? Brothers and sisters, this is God's will for your life. Your growth in holiness from a life of loving God because he first loved us. Let's pray. Father, we don't deserve your grace, Lord. We don't deserve to be called holy, but yet that is what you call us for all of us, for those that, God, you have graciously saved and redeemed. God, you have humbled us to see that, God, we are in great need of your grace, Lord, your forgiveness, and your, Lord, you have freely offered it in Christ. So, God, thank you for this reminder tonight of the gospel. And, Lord, we pray that, God, you would enable us by your Spirit to grow in Christ's likeness. God, that you would grow us in holiness. That, God, we would know you more intimately, more deeply. So, God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're going to sing our next song. It's going to be called Holy Spirit, Living Breath of God. And it's going to be singing about how it is this Holy Spirit.